is Jennifer Diane Ghostin, and welcome to Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land, the podcast. You, the listening audience, will have the opportunity through episodes in this podcast to learn, dissect, and grapple with some of the issues involving those of us separated from our family of origin. You may have wondered what reunion looks like from an adoptee's point of view, or be embarking upon taking that journey yourself to search for your first family, or simply want confirmation that you are not alone in your experience wherever you are on the path of healing and pushing through a trauma. Wouldn't it be empowering to have many of your burning questions answered here? If you like Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, follow and or give a five-star rating so others can find it too. During the course of your day, I hope you will tell at least one friend or someone who you believe might find value in it, because word of mouth is the best way for me to grow the show. Remember to share this podcast on social media to spread the word, hashtag AdopteeLand. If you seek to be an ally of the adoption community, I hope you will consider making a donation to keep the show going at patreon.com forward slash AdopteeLand. Your contribution allows me to present a weekly episode free of advertisement and is greatly appreciated to add a valuable resource to the adoption community. Thank you so much for being here. During times in this episode, there is sensitive content that may be traumatizing to some audiences. Listener discretion advised. A very big shout out to listeners of the podcast who have donated or continue to support this show each month with their financial contribution through patreon.com. Deborah Michelle, Cynthia, Deborah Sparrow, Michael, Nancy McCauley, Gail Swift, Kate Murphy, and Damon Davis each allow me to provide this podcast as a resource. Their support means to me that they see value in what I'm doing and that they care deeply about others. Thank you so much. And thank you, all the other listeners, for being here. Tina from episode 45 of season three teamed up with me to share this bonus conversation. As adoptees, we have together developed one of my most precious relationships. And it is with joy that I accepted the invitation to answer her thoughtful questions so that you might get to know me better, the host of Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land. This is part one, and we thank you for being here. We're going to have fun with this, Tina. So we're turning the tables. So just for context, this conversation is happening the same week that my conversation with you posted on uh, Tuesday. Yes. So whatever this does air or if it hits the floor. No, it, it's going to air. It's going to air. And it's recorded. Okay. I'll just say just for context, it's being recorded January 6, 2022. Okay. So in the course of our conversation, as we were closing, I had mentioned that I had some questions for you and you agreed to allow for that conversation. 
So you said yes to a conversation with me for your own podcast. So we'll see how this all works out. <laughs> yeah, it will be a bonus episode. I'm excited to share it with the audience. And uh, I just thank you for doing this. I think it, it has potential to be very rewarding for everyone. Well, I mean, I appreciate the conversations that we have. I know that I shouldn't be the only one that benefits from uh, what we talk about because I feel like so many things come up within the course of the conversation that are helpful to me and so would have to be helpful to other people that would be listening. So I don't know if there's anything that you want to just start with that you'd like to share that's just on your heart and then I can maybe ask you the questions from there. Okay. What's on my heart right now is our paths haven't crossed back in 2018. I never would have dreamed it would be as special as it has become to this day. And and I just think you are an awesome person. Uh, you helped me work through a lot of things, adoption and non-adoption stuff. And uh, you know, everybody should have a Tina in their life. And so I'm glad. I'm glad to know you. And, and I do want to say that I have received so much support uh, from many, many other adoptees and members of the Constellation. It just warms my heart to know that our community is as great as it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So thank you for saying all that. I, I do think that you deserve the compliments and the um, the support for stepping out and doing the podcast and holding all these stories so personally and just what you're saying at the beginning kind of gets me a little emotional so <laughs> you're like make me cry <laughs> I think moving forward with the conversation I appreciate how you and I both unlock things in each other that I think is more powerful than the friendship you and I have, that there's a purpose to it and that other people listening hopefully will understand that the work that we continue to do, because we're not done, is ongoing and that the people that you journey with are so much a part of the process and the journey. And so I do feel blessed. However you landed in my life or I landed in yours, it was meant to be and I'm not going to question it (laughs) I'm not going to think you know I don't deserve it I'm just going to move forward and just be thankful in it that um, I have someone that's that so gets what's happening and what goes on and how things are when you're adopted yes so your first question in your journey were there instances where you had to say no to people and our situations to say yes in other areas? Yes, that's, um, that's a question that I could answer in, in many ways, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choose to answer it this way. Okay. Um, in reunion in 2017 with my paternal side, I wasn't known about. I was like brand new, you know, like... Mm-hmm. Unlike my maternal side, which everyone had had known that I was out there somewhere. So 
I know that I was not um, received in the same way mm-hmm. as on my paternal side as I was with my maternal side. I understood that. Yet I remember just wanting everybody to want to know me, you know. Mm-hmm. You know I, wanted, I wanted that. So mm-hmm. it wasn't like anyone was mean. It didn't seem like it really mattered whether they mm. knew me or not. And my aunt in particular, one of my aunts in particular, I just felt like she made it clear, clearer than everybody else, I guess I should say, that it wasn't, like it wasn't important. And then it would be important. Then it wasn't. And then it would be. And mm-hmm. and I remember when it wouldn't be important, I, I felt like a kid wanting acceptance mm-hmm. and and dealing with some of the things that would be said or done that were quite clear to me that she didn't want to be bothered. And mm-hmm. I remember just going back and forth with that over a period of probably two years. When it was good, it was good. When it was not good, it was not good. And then mm-hmm. it just came to a point, just kind of came to a head last year where I realized that that's her choice and that I don't have to try to get someone to want to get to know me, want to have a relationship. So I had to say no. I had to say no to the back and forth. The other part of the question was, say that again, to say yes to something, right? Yeah, I feel like that closing of off can open up something else and I'm wondering if anything else opened up for you at that time or since then yeah and it continues to open wider and that is Mm -hmm. taking care of myself and and -hmm. and not being childlike I think that was important to me too because I just felt like a a child when things would not be so good Mm -hmm. Uh, and so now and I'm still doing that and that's really helped me in all my relationships. And I can't put it all on my aunt. I have to take responsibility mm-hmm. for the fact that I have choices too, you know, mm-hmm. and that I don't have to act childlike or be afraid like like a kid, you know, mm-hmm. um, to get someone to want to be in relationships. So I know that's kind of a long answer <laughs> for that question. No, you know, honestly, I... I'm hearing it reflects the work that you've done because when we embark on putting ourselves out there, especially when we were not known about, it feels very personal and very hurtful when it's not reciprocated or it's not responded in a way that makes us in a slight smallest way feel welcome in the space or in the conversation. There's something to whenever this happened for people in their lives, they go back to that time, right? And if they've never talked about it or if they didn't know about it, they're starting from that from that point where you had done some work. And even though you had, you do feel like this rejected child. I mean, I'm speaking about myself and, and saying that, that it's hurtful. It feels personal. And for us to be able to step back and say, you know what, this actually it feels like it's personal, but it really isn't about me. It's about the other person and where they're at and and the work they still need to do. And maybe they're not ready yet, or maybe they never will be. 
Yeah, so I'm sorry that that struggle has been happening for you and ongoing just because I care about you. And so I've heard people say to me, well, then that person's missing out. And I get when people say that, and I'm saying it to you now, you know, that person, people are missing out in your life, but it still is a feeling of that we need to reckon with. Mm-hmm. It still doesn't make those emotions surrounding that go away. So I appreciate your strength and your ongoing work in that because it is ongoing. Yeah, it is. And and I want to add that I, you know, had a uh, opportunity to, to talk about being in reunion on a podcast. Mm-hmm. And I remember the day that I did it, it was a high point. It was a good time with this aunt. I was thinking about what I said, and I even listened to it. I said, wow, that's so not the case today. So I want I want to say... Mm-hmm. That yeah, it just depends on when someone asks you a question. Mm-hmm. It depends on what's happening mm-hmm. at that period of time because it can change. And I'm glad to have experienced that because for every guest that I have on, I have to be mindful. I want to always be mindful that that's that particular time during that recording, you know, because mm. things can change. And, and I want to remember that. Yeah. Well, and for better or for worse, they can change. Exactly. You can lose a connection and gain a connection that you didn't know was even going to happen. So can you mention the podcasts that you were on in case other people haven't listened to those or knew about them? Yes. So that's that was uh, Haley Rackey's Adoptees On. And then you said that was two. Yeah. Oh, so Who Am I Really? Hosted by Damon Davis. Okay. Yeah, I love, I'm a, I'm a listener yeah. for sure. Yeah, me too. Um, I like both of but, their shows, yeah. yes. So um, with what you shared about the reunion and how feeling like a child, is there a memory or something you can share about your childhood? Hmm. Well, one of my favorites, uh, it's, you know, something pop in my head, but one of my favorites is... As a five-year-old kindergartner, mm-hmm. I um, went to school around the corner. I loved my kindergarten teacher, Mrs. Webster. Mm-hmm. I still see her mm-hmm. beautiful face right now. And um, Mrs. Webster pinned a note on me one day. So we went half a day, right? We went like, okay. there was like a.m. and p.m. And I believe I was a.m. I can't remember right now. But okay. she pins a note on all of us. And okay. well, the ones that wouldn't normally be there during the time that we were going to get vaccinated on a future day. So all of us say AM students were to come back in the PM on a okay. particular day. So she pins a note for, you know, on all of us, for our parents to know mm-hmm. when to bring us back. And between <laughs> leaving school and getting home, I take the note off because... We had been vaccinated before, you know, and it, I remembered the gun and it, and it hurt. And I was like, I'm not getting that shot, you know. And so I took the note off and the day had come and gone. And, and of course, I wasn't there because my parents didn't know anything about it. And and so the, the school got a hold of them and it, the truth came out, you know. And, oh. and so... <laughs> And so I always say that must have been the beginning of my being 
kind of mischievous, or, um, you know, and not doing know. what I was version. <laughs> There's an aversion to pain element in that story. <laughs> I but, <laughs> but I remember, like, I never liked her, Mrs. Webster, any less. She was still, like, uh-huh. you know, like my favorite teacher ever. And, um, yeah, so. I love that. I think, I mean, most of us can recall our kindergarten teacher or your favorite teacher's names. Yeah. And I just, I remember volunteering in the kids, our kids' classes growing up and kindergarten there's no secrets like kids just say whatever's happening in their family or in their story right they just say it in front of the whole classroom so I love that the visual of you with your little note or tag and it's like nope this is not gonna get to my (laughs) I'm like wow yeah I still remember that I love that. That was in your book, too. I kind of revisited your book, and I remember a part about that. Mm-hmm. The truth so far. Yes. So, uh, yeah, in that that childhood and, you know, growing up, is there something in your youth that you thought about yourself, and um, whether it was school age in there, that you've since learned now as an adult is different in reality? Or you discovered something about yourself that you didn't know when you. You know, what's coming to mind right now is I thought I was shy. You know, I thought Mm -hmm. the reason that I didn't want to raise my hand and I didn't want to be, you know, in front of the class or, Mm -hmm. you know, I just was quiet. You know, I was more of a like a quiet student. Mm -hmm. And I've since learned that I am I'm definitely a introvert and I'm deeply introspective Mm -hmm. and so I believe that's what that was back then that I I would much rather be an observer and take in Mm -hmm. things and because that's how I'm going to really learn and it wasn't shyness like I know now Mm -hmm. there's nothing about me that's shy but I tend to be that person that is quiet I'm I'm just like taking in everything. I'm trying to take in everything around me, the the sights, the sounds, mm-hmm. like everything. And as we've talked before, it does get to be overwhelming and you have to mm-hmm. exit, mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. So that that's the answer I, I'm thinking of now, that that is how I've been in the world, just kind of mm-hmm. just paying attention more than, say, being seen yeah that has yeah yeah that has a big interest to me you and I definitely share these qualities (laughs) or deficits or whatever you want to look at it I think it's interesting that um, what you're saying had I known that as a younger student in the classroom or throughout my education I lacked confidence in the classroom and in my you know learning abilities and things like that because of it it had been maybe presented or known differently what those qualities were and what they actually could help me with. You know, we learn things as we get older, but hearing you say that now, it's interesting. It's that whole idea of how we learn and how we process and knowing that about ourselves much younger is helpful. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a good answer. I like your answer. 
Yeah, and I definitely lack confidence. And I think Mm -hmm. that's because I was under the impression, I remember being a young person, under the impression that the smart people were the ones that were always raising their hand and always getting up, Mm -hmm. you know, the extroverts, so Mm -hmm. to speak. And Mm -hmm. they were the smarter people. So clearly Mm -hmm. if I'm not, don't have that quality, then I must not be as smart as they are. Mm-hmm. But looking back, I know that the qualities that you and I both have are strong qualities. Like, like it, mm-hmm. it didn't make any sense for me to think that they were smarter, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> but I thought the same thing. I think the people that speak up and raise their hand, maybe there's this impression of confidence mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that's so. Right. It just means they were able to raise their hand and possibly know the answer or even be able to say the wrong answer, which would have been like horrifying to me right. personally, you know, to have <laughs> like, don't call on me. And if I say the wrong answer, like that's even worse. That's even worse. Right. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so going through school when you were kind of continuing your education, so that graduating high school, entering college, what were you hoping to learn about or focus on at that time? So I started off as a nursing major. Mm-hmm. Um, start, started off with nursing as my major. And um, mm-hmm. I took a chemistry class, and I think I got a D. And so I had to take mm-hmm. it again, and I got like a C minus. <laughs> I don't know. It was, like, <laughs> it was like it wasn't working out. I just wasn't, mm-hmm. I wasn't doing very well. And as a last, like, I guess, ditch ditch effort to see would I even like nursing. I volunteered at a hospital. And Mm -hmm. and it was the first time I got a real good look at how hard nurses work. And it was during a time, so this is like the late 80s. So it's during a time when, no, I'm sorry, this was like mid-80s. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to say 84, 85. And I remember the they had let go of like the LPNs, you know, they mm-hmm. know they were downsizing. And so you had uh, the RNs, they were having to do all this extra work now, mm-hmm. um, emptying garbage cans and, yeah, like all kinds of stuff that was really causing them to be overworked. And, uh, mm-hmm. and when I would come there every Saturday... They couldn't, they just couldn't wait for me to get there because now they would have some relief. And so I kept thinking about like, this is a hard job. Mm -hmm. I'm not even doing well in the classes I got to do well in if I'm going to do this, you know. So I switched majors. Okay. I switched to psychology and Mm -hmm. I minored in philosophy and I just had found my groove. And I remember Mm -hmm. thinking psych, I could use it in anything I did because I wasn't really sure what career path I was going to take. And I said, mm-hmm. but, you know, relationships with people is something you, you want to be good at. You know, you know, understanding wow. people. And psych did it for me. And I, had a, I remember my teacher, Miss Ingalls. I don't think she was married. And mm-hmm. she wore these like two, two and a half, three inch heels. I think they were three inch mm-hmm. heels. I really think so. They were pumps. And she would be dressed to the the nines and she would come in there and she was teaching abnormal psych and Mm -hmm. from that moment on I was like this is this is what I want to do I want to (laughs) be I want to be like her you know but 
at any rate, I knew that that major, yeah, that would help me in any field. I love that because I think for whoever hears the conversation that I give, we're like, we're supposed to know what we're going to be at 17, 18, you know, for the rest of our lives. And I love that you started at nursing, which is an amazing career. And the fact that you have too much work and then you go on to be a detective. But <laughs> And let me just say, <laughs> let me just say this. I remember just identifying what I liked. At some point, yeah. I was I was going to University of Illinois at Chicago. And at some point during undergrad, I said, well, what do you like? And I said, I like mm-hmm. to drive. I love to drive fast, right? Yeah. I love yeah. to uh, be outdoors. I love solving mysteries and puzzles. And mm-hmm. I like I actually like people, you know, like I like engaging with them and problem solving with them. And I'll I'll tell this story later if you want me to of of how it start started to get my mind thinking what careers does that align with those things align with yeah yeah I mean I think it's so important that we ask ourselves those questions not even just career you know of what we need and what we're interested in and what brings us joy I think it's it's important lifelong questions that we need to ask ourselves yeah, I do um, too. I love, yeah, I, um, yeah, I love that because it's, it's also can change. You know, we can change careers. We can change our mind. We can pivot to something else. And now there's so many apps for who you are, your personality, what career fit, all these things, and whether they're accurate or not, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But the fact that you were asking yourself those questions at that time and knowing that psych base, I was also a psych major too. I think there's probably maybe a lot of adoptees that were psych majors <laughs> maybe just because we were we gravitated to understanding people and just the human condition i don't know i wanted to personally work with children but it was i was interested in people and their stories and why we do what we do and how we act how we act it's yeah, fascinating but, isn't it people are it fascinating is. <laughs> yeah, we are totally yeah, confusing and fascinating so <laughs> So many different things. So that kind of leads us to your career because you did have this whole other part of your life as a detective and and that you are retired from. And what would you like to share about that? Yeah, well, let's start from the beginning. (laughs) So I'm in school. I'm going to college and um, Mm -hmm. wanting a a job, like a part-time job, not far from campus. And it's like three in the afternoon on a Friday. I'm like downtown Chicago. And so I duck into City Hall and there's like a bunch of people like filling out these three by five index cards. And I'm like, what is going on? Like, like you would have thought they were somebody said, we're going to give you a bunch of money. You know, they would just (laughs) if you just fill out this card, they would just go into town, you know. And somebody said, this is the last day to sign up for the police exam. Mm -hmm. And I was like. Well, since I'm here, you know, like I'm here, <laughs> it doesn't cost anything to fill out this this card. And so I do. And I, I go on. I like I just go on about my business like I mm-hmm. like nothing. I don't even think about do I want to be a police officer? I didn't even think about that. Mm-hmm. And fast forward, I get something in the mail to take the written exam. So I say, oh, well, OK, I can do that. You know, like I'm still like, right. <laughs> it, like to know me is like I am. Sometimes I can get an idea about something and then I'll just 
shelve it. You know, I just, mm-hmm. I won't even think about it until it comes back around. And when it came back around, I took the written test. And then months later, there's another test. Like there's like a series of tests over a two-year period mm-hmm. before I received the letter that I have passed everything, talking physical, assessment center. We had to do a whole bunch of stuff. And mm-hmm. and you will start the academy on this day. And that's when it happened, where I'm like, academy? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, how did that happen? Yeah, like, yeah, how did I find myself here, you know, like, in this situation? And, and, and I just remember... I told my parents, and my mom was not for it, but my dad said Mm. this. He says, you can do it. Mm. You can do it. They will train you, and you'll be fine. It was like he was my biggest supporter. My friends, they were like, what are you talking about? You know, like a little bit of you, you know, you don't, Mm. you don't, you haven't even really, like I wasn't street savvy at all. Mm -hmm. You know, nothing, Mm -hmm. nothing about me said police. Mm-hmm. But my dad, who was probably my biggest influencer, he he had my back. And, and that's when I said, I guess I can, if he said I can, you know. Right. So 18 weeks of training. There I was out on the streets of Chicago. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. I love the part about your dad, too. It's just that affirmation from someone that you respect and you look up to means everything. I mean, it it really can just be a life changing. Yeah. And everybody needs one, one somebody like that in their life because they're Absolutely. all those no's, all those non supporters could mm-hmm. have potentially swayed me away if I hadn't had that one somebody that I, I knew that I trusted and I knew was sincere mm-hmm. about, like, I believed what he said. Yeah. Especially in law enforcement, a lot of times you can typically hear someone else, there's an, a parent or an uncle or someone else, an aunt that you know of in your family that's mm-hmm. also that, that career. So you didn't have that, or did you? I did not. I, I had a cousin that actually started months before me. So mm-hmm. she was already in the academy, but that was it. Yeah, we neither one of us mm-hmm. had anybody. We didn't even know. Like, I didn't personally know police officers. Mm-hmm. Well, and the fact that you walked into the office and they're filling out the form <laughs> in the last day, like, okay. <laughs> yeah, it was like late afternoon, like three something. It was really funny how that unfolded. Yeah. Right. Yeah, there's no coincidences. I think you and I have, have agreed on that. No, I think your career, your career found you. Yeah. Like you didn't find <laughs> That's what I think. I really feel like it felt, found me. I did identify in my being what I enjoyed. And um, mm-hmm. I kind of say like the universe was like lining it up. It was getting it in mm-hmm. order. And I just needed to follow those steps, you know, like be there yeah. at that time, which I was and so forth. Mm-hmm. You know, I worked um, in patrol for 11 years. Mm-hmm. Um, I did mm-hmm. work a specialized unit. And then I was promoted to detective in 1998, which was the only thing I ever wanted to do. Now, that's one thing mm-hmm. I remember when I entered the academy is I want to be a detective. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that would happen. Yeah. In year 11. So I spent the last 16 years working violent crimes, crimes against people. 
I wouldn't mm-hmm. know a bad check if you put it in front of me. I did not do any property crimes, <laughs> you know, identity theft or anything like that. I specifically wanted to help people put their lives back together from not that people who are victims of property crimes, they certainly have to put their lives back together again. But some of mm-hmm. the most serious cases we're talking, you know, murder and attempt murder and, mm-hmm. and sexual assault. Those cases are the ones that I worked. Wow. That to me is, that's a whole nother, you could write a whole nother part of your story within that. But I'm sure there's probably things that maybe you weren't able to solve or weren't able to have that conclusion, you know, like on TV. Mm -hmm. That. So I don't know if you have anything that you want to share as far as your experience of being able to solve and then the unsolved and how that affected you? Well, that's a really good question. I, um, yeah, certainly didn't solve everything. I remember a case in particular, New Year's, I believe it was New Year's Day, and it was so cold out that, you know, when Mm. it gets really, really cold in Chicago, I think today is like nine degrees or something. It might have went up to Mm. 17, but it was cold like that on this New Year's Mm -hmm. Day. And it was a body in a car. And Mm. um, that person had been shot. And I remember, and you know, it's cold like that. Your pen stops writing. That's why you carry pencils Mm -hmm. with you, right? So Mm -hmm. I remember my pen stopped writing and I had to pull out my pencil. But that case is still unsolved to my knowledge. And this was probably 98 99. Mm-hmm. It was one of the first homicides I ever worked. And I mean, we worked on that for I don't know how long, you know, year after year we worked on that. And you, and you can mm-hmm. imagine a place like Chicago, it's just n- new cases are coming in all the time. So you mm-hmm. just, yeah, you're inundated with the old and the new. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that one sticks out to me because the witness, mm-hmm. I believe, we had a witness. He was reluctant, but I, I kind of think he would have come around because it was one of those cases where there was a lot of drugs in the trunk. So we knew it was mm-hmm. probably drug related. Mm-hmm. And so the witness, an older gentleman, he had to be like in his 70s. And the victim was a young man, I think in mm-hmm. his 30s. But we knew this older gentleman knew more than he was telling us. Mm-hmm. You know, um, mm-hmm. and then he would later get sick and die. And I just remember, mm-hmm. that, you know, we were just getting further and further away from the truth, you know. And right. so that case stands out to me. Um, but there are others. Mm-hmm. And as far as um, solving a case, and, and this has always been interesting to me. So I retired in 2014. So around mm-hmm. oh, 20. 12, I'm making a decision of when I'm going to retire. You know, I'm Mm -hmm. planning, so to speak. And then I kind of really set the date by 2013. I'm like, I'm setting the date May 2014. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm letting everybody know, my partners and my supervisors, everybody's aware. And so when you're getting close, and I mean like a year or 18 months close to retirement, it's not that your case load goes down, but say, for example, on a 
police report, your name won't be in the first box. It'll be in the second box because when it comes time for court, typically the prosecuting attorney will grab that first name to have Mm -hmm. them come to court and testify. I don't know if that makes sense, but it's kind of like you're stepping back so Mm -hmm. that you won't have have to be in court as often when you retire. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm just setting, I'm saying that, and I, you'll know why I said that later. Towards the end of 2013, I believe, I want to say October, I'd have to look it up, but I know it was towards the end of the year before I'm to retire. Mm-hmm. I get assigned a case along with two other detectives, literally three blocks from where I live. Oh, yeah. Like it's it's my neighborhood. Right. Right. And it's a home invasion. A Mm. young man has has gone in, busted in a home where a woman and her daughter live and he attacks them. Mm. And then he gets away and then he goes still in my neighborhood. Now he goes Mm -hmm. like maybe a mile away, less than a mile away. And he's attempting a home invasion. Mm. And then he goes a few more blocks away and attacks a 15-year-old on her way to school and rapes her. Mm-hmm. All these things happened early in the morning between, mm-hmm. say, 3 in the morning and 6 in the morning. And so I've been assigned to handle these cases. And mm-hmm. all I can think, this is like in my backyard, right? Mm-hmm. And, right. and I remember... I remember thinking, what are the chances of, like, I'm about to retire, and what are the chances of me getting, you know, all these years I've been working cases, three cases in my neighborhood. Mm. So long story short, what I came to realize, and I knew this throughout my career, that the community, they have to trust you. They They have to feel like you are trustworthy. And it's hard to do when people don't know you and, you you know, you don't you don't necessarily um, have, I guess, like a personal relationship. You know, I, you're in and out of people's homes and in neighborhoods all over the city and people just don't know you. But when they know you, they trust you. They mm-hmm. trust. You. And that's what I would realize when I would go knocking on doors for those three cases People knew me from the neighborhood. They knew, and right. so now they're like, you know what? Let me show you this, or let me tell you that. Like mm-hmm. I was getting information left and right, and I realized the only way we would solve that case in ten days. And and I wow. remember thinking, law enforcement has to bridge the gap between them and the community because that's mm-hmm. the only way people will cooperate. That's the only way people will help you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the only way because I don't think that case would have been solved so quickly without the community. Like, there's no way we would. Right. People volunteered the fact that they had a camera that we didn't even know they had, mm-hmm. like things like that. And they were willing to give and do. And the police can't solve crimes without the, the public. And mm-hmm. yeah, so that would be my last major case. And I thought, what were the chances of that happening? Right. I mean, like you said, it was so personal. You were, it was your neighborhood. These were your neighbors. Right. 
and the whole idea of the trust aspect, there's a lot that resonates with me as an adoptee too, is that the trust and who to trust and how you trust and how you've learned or not, uh, or learned to mistrust mm-hmm. others, others that are in your family relationships and your closest relationships. And in the context of a crime, if you can't even trust anyone around you, how are you going to trust this, you know, officer that's a stranger, this person Right. that it's very complicated. Yeah. That's, that's pretty incredible that that was so close to home for you in so many ways. Yeah, it was really, I still think about that. And i tell you something else that was interesting about that case. The description that was given by everybody, by victims and witnesses, was like a really tall guy, like Mm 6'5". And they weren't sure if they were dreadlocks or braids, that that was not clear. They weren't sure Mm -hmm. about that. Dark complected, like that, like. This person, you would know them if you saw them again. Mm -hmm. And there was a guy that fit that description that actually was in possession of one of the victim's cell phones. And so when Mm -hmm. we brought him in, we were like, what are the chances? You look just like the guy that they described. Mm -hmm. And he said, but I didn't do it. He said, I just found that phone in the alley. Well, the victim had dropped her phone. Mm -hmm. We didn't know that. We only later learned Mm -hmm. that. But... Yeah, he fit the description, like, really. And people would say, when we held lineups, they would say, it looks like him. They said, I don't know. It looks like, say, number two, right? Right. And and this is what happened, and it still does something to me. He told me, he says, I didn't do it. He says, I was at work. He worked at UPS. He just, He did seem sincere, but people say they didn't do it all the time, you know? Right. But I, re- I remember... Um, <laughs> We contacted UPS, and UPS is, is, you know, they're not, they don't send me a check or anything, but they are the best when it comes to having cameras and, you know, mm-hmm. having things really pinpointed with mm-hmm. that, that company. And so, yeah, they got us a tape of the video, and sure enough, at the time of the crimes, this guy was there. And okay. I just remember thinking, thank God for UPS's video. Hello. Yeah, because I don't know, mm-hmm. he may have been detained a lot longer, but we certainly didn't right. have the right guys, is my point. And, right. and that's why it's so important, you, you know, to find out, going back to adoption, the more information you have, the better decisions you can make. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the whole mm-hmm. closed system, you know, that, yeah. that we were under and the secrecy and can, I can't tell you that, can't tell you this, mm-hmm. and can't show you that. And, you, you know, right. like you can make really good decisions with more information, not less. Absolutely. You know, I even think of what you shared about that young man in the car and that whatever was collected at that time, you know, the work that was done to solve the case, you know, it continues, it's ongoing. Mm-hmm. And hopefully, you know, new things come to light. You know, it makes me really think of what DNA has done in so many lives and careers solving cases that has been changing, like just changing people's lives, something that we didn't know was going to be this tool that was going to present itself and that those answers, solving secrets was going to present itself, whether people were going to come forward or not Mm -hmm. because of the DNA and because of what we know now. 
So, yeah, as you're talking, there's so much that overlaps that I, with adoptees and what we've had to maneuver and be detectives and piece by piece. And the younger adoptees are in the adoptive zone of really understanding and being responsible with, in the context of families, that that is, it's just sacred space to me, mm-hmm. that the, the omission of truth is still lying. There's this ongoing lesson to be learned for each of us solve our own mysteries within our own stories. Mm-hmm. So I just appreciate you sharing about your career and retiring. And I feel like so much of what you've done has led you up to what you carry into your podcast. And I just appreciate the comfort level that I've experienced that I know other people must have experienced having conversations with you that it's not an interrogation, you know, from what you did as a detective, but there is a a mutual respect and understanding that I feel like you bring that gives the other person the comfort that they can trust you, that they can share their story with you and know that you're going to hold it in a way that is empowering and is encouraging. So I just appreciate that about you. I wanted to say that. Thank you. And- <laughs> Thank you so much for that. Yeah, I do believe that law enforcement, my career prepared me for where I am now mm-hmm. with, um, I say, giving back to the adoption community because it has given me so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's given me so much from day one. And, mm-hmm. and um, I just hope to continue to be able to do it. it at least half of what it has done for me. Mm, That's so good. And I share that with you. I feel like the people that have put themselves out there, shared their stories, written their memoir, I do feel the strength of that. And so that's allowed me to have conversations uh, with other people in other spaces, especially in the support group setting that has been so meaningful and important as I continue to learn because I'm learning every day. Yeah, me Um, too. Yeah. But you are also someone who has written their memoir, and I'm wondering if you could speak about how you began, completed, ultimately publishing your memoir, The Truth So Far, that you can tell us. Sure. First of all, I've, I've, I'm a journaler. I've been journaling for mm-hmm. decades. And, and I remember mm-hmm. when I got, we, we called it a diary as a little girl. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's where my writing was. You know, I had a little lock on it. Did you have one? I was going to say, did I have a lock and a key? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yes, my mother gave me a diary as a little girl, mm-hmm. and I treasured that. You know, I just treasured being able to go to a place and write my thoughts down, my feelings mm-hmm. and stories. And so I've been writing and loving writing for years. And mm-hmm. so fast forward, I'm going to say 20 2009, maybe 2010, somewhere in there was Mm -hmm. when I was like 99% sure that I was going to embark upon search and reunion. And, Mm -hmm. and I am a note taker anyway. I like taking notes. Like like I'll Mm -hmm. just have a pen and pad in every, pretty much every room in my house so that if something pops in my head, I write it down. So I knew I had to take really good notes. I thought it would be very important. Everybody I talked to, every thing that I saw that resonated with me was going to go in this journal specifically for search and reunion. So I want to say right around 2012, so I'm in reunion with my maternal side in 2012, is mm-hmm. when I started to 
organize these notes, you know, like into like a memoir, you know, and I really wasn't sure if it was going to be a memoir. I kind of thought it would be like, this is what I did. And I just want to share it with you. It may be helpful, you know, and write Mm -hmm. a book kind of from that perspective. And then it hit me Mm -hmm. that my personal story was important. And Mm -hmm. yeah, so now I'm like really considering making this a book. And then right around 2014, no, no, it was 2015. I'm pretty, mm-hmm. I've pretty much organized everything, but I'm not really sure. Do I publish? <laughs> you know, like I, mm-hmm. I remember thinking, you don't have to publish just because you wrote it and it's in a book. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's there, it's done pretty mm-hmm. much, and you don't have to publish. And then, again, just something comes across my my path, and that is 100 Days to Publishing Group online. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it was two young women that live here in Nashville. And I'm, I'm thinking, oh, these millennials, they're sharp. Mm -hmm. I I knew these ladies, they, I want to hook up with them. If, if they say that I can get published in a hundred days, maybe I can. And Mm -hmm. joining that group changed my life because these young women, well, this is how the group was. The leader, she's like a writing coach. She would shoot mm-hmm. us an email and it would be, a. I think it was a, it might've been audio only. It was audio only. And she would say, she would be encouraging and she would say, what I want you to do today, you know? And so we would get those every day. And, and her point uh-huh. was, if you follow through and you stick with me for every day, you'll mm-hmm. be published. And when I tell you these, these young women, one was the, like the coach, the head, and then another was like my accountability partner. So mm-hmm. she was the one that was telling me, you can do it, you know, and, and what did you do today? And, and we would just have these conversations. And I'm talking, this is daily. This is daily. So it is a commitment, but it was mm-hmm. fun. And I was learning by leaps and bounds because these ladies knew, you know, you're going to need a graphic designer if you're going to have a paperback. Mm-hmm. If you're just going to do an ebook, you still need a cover. You know, like they were telling mm-hmm. me how, you know, you're going to have to learn marketing. You're going to have to get out there on social media. Like, because these millennials, they know their stuff. Mm-hmm. And I'm learning and I'm thinking, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, I think I can do this. And I did. And what's interesting, that group started, I want to say, I'm trying to think when it started, whatever time it started, by the time the 100 days was up, was going to be November, which is National Adoption Awareness Month. Mm-hmm. So it like coincided with yeah. the perfect time to release. Yeah, it was just like everything lined yeah. up. It was just really amazing. I do know that it was probably the scariest, one of the scariest mm-hmm. times in my life because to be public mm. is, is, um, that's no small task because, you know, no. you got to be brave, you know. Right. Well, I can say as someone who's read your book that being able to have the words and hear your story in my own mind, in my own space, so encouraging to me. And I do feel the bravery in in the author, you know, when I read their personal account of their experience. So, yeah, I do. So I support that. It is extremely brave. And I'm just impressed with the 100 day and um, that whole scope because you had to be ready. You already had everything that you needed written 
or were you also editing as you were going along? There was a fair amount of re-editing on my own. Okay. But I, I did, um, and that was what the ladies told me, you know, you got to get an editor and, and how to shop for one. And I remember shopping for one and finding one who, interesting enough, was an adoptee. Oh, wow. Can you believe that? Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, mean I these are things that you couldn't plan. You can't plan. That's when you kind of know when you're going with it may be in the right direction or on the right path, that there was no way you could have planned that out and said, okay, and we're going to release in November. Yeah, right? like no way. And I, I never forget, no. I never forget John is his name. He said, uh, you know what's interesting? He said, you know, I'm an adoptee. He says, and I, until reading your manuscript, I had no intentions of searching. That's what he told me. Oh, wow. Can you believe that? He says, and now I'm giving a second thought because I do have a young son and he just kind of, yeah, yeah. And he was really starting to think about his son because he, had, he wow. was, had no interest. Yeah, it was really, and that really moved me. Because Absolutely. I, I mean, it resonates with me, with, with you just saying that, that it just speaks to if we can just show up <laughs> with our own story and, and say it. Exactly. Or communicate it, however it is for you. It doesn't mean you have to write it, but maybe you're an artist or maybe you're a musician or maybe you work with people that you could have that effect on. That's that's pretty incredible, just that story by itself, Jennifer, for them to be able to tell you that. Isn't that something? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, each time I think about it, because I remember when he told me that, yeah, it really did something to me. It was almost like, if that's all my book ever does, that was a that was uh-huh. enough. <laughs> uh-huh. Right. Yeah. I mean, it also shows you too the unexpected. You know, we I think we have this expectation of whatever it is, success, failure, in between, and then something like this happens that you never really expected or saw coming, and it's just kind of that small little nudge of confirmation of like it's okay, it's going to be okay. Yes, it was to me. It was like God saying, "I'm going to show you." just a glimpse of why this is important, what you're doing, mm-hmm. and that you're on the right track. That's just mm-hmm. what it felt like. And the thing, too, that was important to me, so going back to editing, is content. Because editing can be expensive for mm. a person to take their time. I mean, it's just not cheap. Their name is on it, too, you know? So it's, it's no small mm-hmm. task, editing. So mm-hmm. I said, I'm going to focus on content. And John would have me get rid of like two over 200 pages. Oh, wow. Can you believe it? Yeah, he said, um, you don't want to annoy the reader. If it's something they can Google, take all that out of there. You know, he, I had, and I didn't know, but I had a lot of stuff in there that just didn't need to be in there. I would tell anybody, if you're publishing, definitely focus on an editor that's good at content. Because he, mm-hmm. you know, he knows, because that's what he does. That's his living. Mm-hmm. So, He's looking at it from a very different perspective than me, who had never written a book before, you know, had never. Well, it's personal. It's your story. Right, right, right. When they say rip out 200 pages, it's like, oh, that's painful for me to hear you say that. (laughs) But he was right. I think he was. I really, because he showed me and and he made it really clear. You don't have to. This Mm -hmm. is just my suggestion in terms of, because he's thinking of the reader. Absolutely. That's what right. he's thinking of. He's thinking of the reader. And mm-hmm. and that's I think that's how you're supposed to think. You do want to tell your story, 
the way you mm-hmm. want to tell it, you do also want to think about what you want the reader to come away knowing and feeling. That's so good. Yeah. That's so good. You know, and I'm, everything you're saying is new to me, you know, of the publishing and the editing and all that, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to say I'm not a writer because then you'll argue with me, but. <laughs> I sure um, will. <laughs> but I bought a, but the book aspect and to me hearing that voice of God in my own life, it just was really simple. It's just, just right. Mm-hmm. That's the message I keep getting is just right. Like you don't understand why or how or what or the effects of it. It doesn't matter, but I know it's, it's something that has been important to me. So I just keep coming back to hearing that prayer in my own head of just right, just do it. And, and, and that's um, what I would say. Yeah. To anybody just right, just right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you never know. Yeah. You don't, you don't really know what, why you're writing necessarily, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like right and, now. Yeah. Right, right. Well, and if you are able to share it in your own comfort, I think sometimes you can hear the effect that your words can have. And I feel like that's the blessing in that. If you're able to reach somebody else in some way, or maybe even have them look at something from a different perspective than they're so used to, which is so important for us as adoptees, Mm -hmm. um, and so vulnerable at the same time, that, you know, the voices of everybody is important, not just one. Right. And or not just a few or the loudest. Right. That, you know, we each individually bring something. It's important and it matters. It sure does. Yeah. So with your podcast, because I feel like you you've gone from, you know, this career and there are kind of each separate careers and now with the podcast and I don't now, how many episodes have you recorded? Because I know you have some that are recorded well in advance. I don't know how many, what number you're on, how you're feeling about the podcast and this new part of, really big part of your life. Yeah. Let me just say how it all came about. I wanted to finish telling my story. So my book leaves off at being in reunion with my maternal side and having bits and pieces of information about my paternal side. Mm -hmm. And so the book was published in 2015, 2017. I do a DNA test and in reunion with my paternal side. So I want to finish telling the story, but I don't want to write another book about it because Mm -hmm. I know everybody doesn't read and Mm -hmm. I like theater. And so I, I, got together with someone that read my book that's a writer. We used to work together. And so he said, yeah, I would love to write a theater play with you. And we put our heads together. We did it. We finished it in 2019. And I was all gung-ho, you know, like I had actors waiting to read for parts. And then 2020. (laughs) Right. The pandemic happens. And so now... I have to switch gears. Mm -hmm. And I just remember listening to podcasts and there was after, like, I just love podcasts. And there Mm -hmm. was one in particular that was an audio drama that I was listening to. And I thought, maybe I can turn the would-be theater play into an audio drama and Mm -hmm. do a podcast, you know, like the one I'm listening to. Mm -hmm. That's how the podcast kind of came to be but what's really interesting is after I did 
a couple of episodes. I think it was like the the first three episodes. Mm-hmm. I uh, wanted to talk to the creator of the music, and he's a transracial adoptee. Corey mm-hmm. Quinn did all the music for the audio drama, and he and mm-hmm. I just really close. And mm-hmm. and so he did a conversation, and it was sometime during that period. So we're talking like March 2021. Okay. And because this podcast started in March of 2021. And I remember sometime during my conversation with Corey that I'm like, I think I need to talk to more adoptees. <laughs> and one by one, you know, people were saying yes to a conversation and, and it was going, it was healing for me and them. Mary Herbert is an adoptee on Instagram and an upcoming guest on the podcast. Mm -hmm. And she has a quote that I love that she says that storytelling is healing for the listener and the storyteller. Mm -hmm. And that right there sums up how I'm at to answer your question about Mm -hmm. how many people, how many adoptees have said, yes, I'm at, I want to say 50, right around 50 adoptees have had conversations with me for an episode. That's incredible. <laughs> That's incredible because if you think of the pandemic, right, and how it, it's affected everybody in so many different ways and the loss and the distance and the postponement. And I'm so glad that you pivoted in this space because we all have benefited from it with the audio drama, just showing how something can be different and, and be presented in an unexpected way. It's just... It's amazing to me. And then to have the conversations that I think a lot of adoptees have really been encouraged and inspired by hearing other stories to know that, you know, we have this whole community. Yes. Yeah. And I think I've heard Damon Davis say, even if he wanted to talk to every adoptee, it's just impossible. (laughs) It's it's Mm -hmm. impossible. So it's like, yeah, I think it's great that there are um, these different podcasts different platforms Mm -hmm. because there's more than enough of us yes (laughs) I mean for better or for worse because I feel like you will never run out of guests because there's so many adopted people exactly yeah there's going to continue to be episodes If you are an adoptee and would like to share your adoption journey, please visit jenniferdianeghoston.com. Thank you so much for being here, and be sure and follow me on Instagram at Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land.